This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. My name is Dan Coatsworth, and on this week's show, we've got a smorgasbord of stories about investing, personal finance, and more. Joining me is Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny. Hello, Dan. Love the use of the word smorgasbord. If you are fed up with being presented with hidden fees when you shop online, we've got some interesting news coming up in the show. I've also got some good news if you hold any US stocks or funds in your ISA or pension, as markets have hit new record highs this week. We'll also be chatting about what's driven that performance, and I'll dive into the latest results from Netflix, hot on the heels of 10 of its original films scooping up 18 Oscar nominations. Not everyone is doing quite so well. A new report shows mortgage and credit card defaults are up and Buy Now, Pay Later continues to grow in popularity. We'll be talking about the implications of those trends in a bit. Tesla has just reported its latest results and we'll hear from Shares Magazine's Tom Sieber and Stephen Fraser about how that company is doing and what's on its agenda for 2024. We'll also be looking at potential changes to Royal Mail services as the days of getting letters delivered six days a week could be coming to an end. Laura Souter will be joining us in a bit to talk with AJ Bell's Investments Director, Ryan Hughes, about market trends. First up, Dan, though, let us talk about US stocks and shares, because every time I look at the S&P 500, the Nasdaq, it seems to be hitting a new record. They've been having a whale of a time. Yeah, it still seems to sort of uh, sort of really kick off last the end of tail end of last week, where the the S and P five hundred, which is an index of sort of the five hundred big companies on the, on the U S market, that hit a new record high. And then this week, it seems sort of just sort of sneaking ahead each day. Um, and and so perhaps the key driver for this market has been the bullish outlook for um, sort of semiconductor stocks. We've had names like TSMC and ASML reporting. Um, and you know, I think that the, the sort of the chip-related industries had had a sort of a bit of a tough time. There's some exceptions like Nvidia, which has been riding the AI boom, but lots of others have sort of seen a slump in demand that sort of dates back to about sort of the COVID pandemic. But now there seems to be this really small signs of a turnaround. So we had TSMC, which is Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing, last week talked about strong revenue growth expectations for 2024. ASML orders more than tripled last quarter. So, so obviously, the, the, these sort of positive messages are sort of helping to drive the market. Because the US is so sort of tech heavy, uh, when, when sort of semiconductors become in favor, naturally, that will have a, a really big influence on sort of the overall market. But it is worth pointing out that not everyone is doing well. So Texas Instruments still going through some painful times. It gave a disappointing quarterly forecast and sort of indicated that sort of sales and chips for um, industrial and automotive uses haven't recovered. And we've also had quite a few companies report in recent days in, in sort of other sectors in both the UK and the US that aren't quite firing on all cylinders. Uh, Fever Tree came in short with its revenue uh, growth uh, versus guidance for the full year. Halford's had a terrible December. Um, and then if you know that the, the, the industrial conglomerate 3M, uh, best known for things like scotch tape and post-it notes, they had a terrible reaction to the latest update. The shares fell on news that China and, and consumer retail end markets continued to be soft. And, it, and it's, it is tough out there. And I think this is going to be the case until we see economic growth pick up. And of course, that's heavily dependent on interest rates being cut. If you want to hear more about those chip stocks that Dan was just been talking about, we had a great interview on last week's podcast with Mike Seidenberg from Alliance Technology Trust. And what really interested me about that was how bullish he was on AI stocks and the fact that even though there might be a softening of some business spend on some technology in terms of AI for just things like productivity, that is where a huge amount of money is there to be made. And we've certainly seen that sort of really doubled down on in the last couple of days from those big stock names that you've been talking about. Another big name, I don't know, this 
does surprise me somewhat because I think everyone I know already has a Netflix account. So it does really make me wonder if they will ever reach the peak of subscriber numbers, how they can possibly still be growing because it is damp. I know it's, it was. It came out with these numbers and um, really pulled a rabbit out of the hat. This one it added more than thirteen million subscribers in the three months that ended um, in December. Now that was the most for any quarter since twenty twenty. Uh, and you know, I'm thinking, you know, where are where are all these you know, extra people coming from? Of course, one of the key things that they're finding is. They've been getting heavy on people sharing passwords. So, you know, you might share it with your friends or your family. And Netflix is saying, you know, enough is enough. Everyone's got to have their own account. So this crackdown seems to be working. So you now got sort of influx of people sort of saying, okay, I will sign up um, for this. But it also helps that it's got some quite popular shows and films and some really interesting you know, sort of stuff at the moment. So, um, you know, I mentioned at the start about it, it got, it's got quite a lot of Oscar nominations for some of its uh, original content. Now, if you go back a few years, everyone was sort of laughing about Netflix saying um, it's got, you know, it's just throwing money at all these sort of big name stars and producing some, you know, pretty poor quality films. I mean, I mean, I, I watched one the other day called Lift, which is absolute howler. You go back to things like Red Notice, it cost a bomb to make. But um, I don't know, people seem to like them. So, it, you know, they've got you know, stuff like uh, Nyad and Maestro, they've all been... These are these sort of the latest Oscar nominees. I think it's just got this constant trickle of content, and actually, you know, it's stuff people want to watch. And they, you know, they're not all blockbusters. They're lots of different things. But I think what they want is sort of these water cooler moments. They want you to talk about things, talk about it with your friends and family, and, and perhaps those who haven't got a subscription will then go, "Ooh, maybe I want to see it." Like, like The Crown uh, is still incredibly popular. Um, I don't know if, Danny, if you see Leave the World Behind, are you a sort of big Netflix follower? I've watched The Crown, um, I have to say, and we do have Netflix, although I am a bit more of an Amazon Prime girl because I like a lot of those sort of home improvement shows that they have on their discovery option. And I think that is the thing, isn't it? People will buy those extra add-ons and then you get to a point and you think, how much am I spending on subscriptions every month? And then you start dialing back. And I have recently ditched Apple because I've watched the morning show and I'll now wait until there's something else on that I want to watch. And I think that's the secret for Netflix. They just constantly keep adding in a way that some other providers, I'm thinking of Disney, that they're just not quite getting there in terms of the breadth and the amount and the refresh. There is always something there to watch. And certainly for my kids, they say, look, you can get rid of Disney. You can get rid of Apple. Yeah, you can just about get rid of Prime, but don't get rid of Netflix. I think I think and the fact that we all seem to be sort of um you know use Netflix so widely gives it pricing power. So that means it can push up prices without sort of worrying too much that we're gonna see a big drop off in, in demand. Another thing I just wanted to point out is it's going heavy on these partnership deals. So um for example, in the States, if you if you get a mobile um, contract with T-Mobile, you get a sort of bundled package and you get Netflix included with it. These are all sort of quite clever ways of you know, just keep getting more and more people through the door. And of course, it's the constant trickle of um, content will keep people interested. It's got these advertising sort of tiers now where you get, you, know, you can, for, for a slightly cheaper price, you, you know, if you put up with some adverts, um, which I think more people are doing. And of course, all the streaming platforms are now going down the same route where they're, they're sort of serving adverts. That's more revenue coming into to Netflix. It's, it's sort of it's got its foot at the door with games. But you know, the other thing that Netflix has announced this week is, is about sports. And so it signed up WWE Raw. Now, Danny, it quite surprised me when we were doing the prep for this podcast that you seem to indicate that you are the biggest <laughs> wrestling fan in the world. And I did not see that coming at all. <laughs> Do you know, it just harks back to my childhood because I remember Saturday nights, giant haystacks, Big Daddy. They were just appointment to view television time. And in the United States, this WWE Raw, Raw Mondays, it is absolutely huge. And my sister lives over in Florida now, and she says that sometimes they will have Raw parties that she gets invited to because this is something that very few 
um, broadcasters now are able to grab hold of, these appointment to view that you don't watch on catch up, that you have to watch right there, right at that time, live, and potentially have some mates along with you or, you know, have one of those parties where you're talking to them online. And it is a huge amount of cash that they are investing in this. I mean, we're talking about $5 billion. But crucially, it is a decade-long deal with an option to add on an additional decade. They can come out after five if they need to. But this is fascinating move by Netflix because it is all about Netflix building up the opportunity to create merchandise. If you think about Squid Games, you know, those kind of shows just capture people's imaginations. And they've already been dabbling with live stuff. I know that they had um, Chris Rock doing a, a special stand-up last year. Um, they had um, the Las Vegas Grand Prix, a big um, celebrity golf event. But this feels like something that Netflix can really get its teeth into and potentially bring this wrestling to a much bigger audience. And if you think about the kind of people that have come out of it, I mean, The Rock, you know, there is nobody bigger than Dwayne Johnson. And if you think about the crossover that he has had, there is a huge potential here for, for Netflix. And yeah, I, I am. I am a bit of a fan. I just think it is... A spectacle, you know, what's not to like? Men in Lycra throwing other men in Lycra <laughs> around. It's great. <laughs> I, you know, it's, I guess it's that you, when you're a kid, you're watching it thinking, okay, this is, I can't believe they're smashing sort of chairs over their heads. And then it's sort of that, you know, sort of spoiler alert, you know, perhaps it's it's all slightly <laughs> a bit fake, isn't it? But, um, but yeah, I but mean, that's it, what it, I love. That's what I love because you, you know that they're having this fake fight and they're not really hurting each other. So therefore, you don't feel awful getting into the come on, smash a chair over his head because you know that he's going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, it, it is an interesting move for Netflix. And of course, you know, Amazon does does do the sports stuff already. But like I say, it, it's, an, it's another reason to tune in. And also, yeah, like also like you say, it's, it's another reason to tune in at a precise time each week, which is you know, slightly turning the streaming model on its head where everyone's got used to sort of um, do it when, whenever you want to do it, not 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 the classic days where we have to sit around a home waiting for something to come on Channel 4 because it was in the sort of the radio times <laughs> to happen at a certain time. But. but that's smart, isn't it? Because if you have to tune in while you're there, you might then have a look and see what else Netflix has put on for you know that week, something new, which you'll then go back and, and binge watch in the way that we've got used to traditional streamers. And it is that appointment to view which makes you go to that platform, which I think Netflix is really thinking about when it's signing this deal yeah uh, it's, it, it, it's it's really interesting the company came you know through the pandemic did very well everyone was stuck at home watching it then it was all everyone's going well you know you're not going to do very well afterwards you've already signed everyone up they, I, I just get the feeling that netflix is sort of turning a corner again seem to get their act together and um, much more clarity about where they're going so uh yeah obviously it, it was an interesting reaction from the stock market seemed to like it Another big stock to report it on earnings this week is the electric vehicle maker Tesla, which is you know, hugely popular with investors around the world. So Tom Sieber and Stephen Fraser from Shares Magazine have been looking through the numbers, and they're here now to talk about that ugly cyber truck and how uh, Tesla <laughs> is getting on in general. Thanks, Dan. As we record, Tesla has just announced its latest earnings overnight, and they haven't gone down particularly well, Steve. Maybe you could sort of explain why um these earnings have had a, a poor reception yeah hi tom and hi uh, listeners um i mean it's interesting isn't it uh, tesla um announces these quarterly results but i suppose the, the longer term story about tesla is not really quarter on quarter but i mean there was a, a there was a mild miss on on both the revenue and the earnings line but it's it's a pretty modest miss so to explain how the share prices has, has, has performed um, in response, falling about 6% or so. Um, it, it tells you there's, there's a lot more uh, going on under the, the, the so-called bonnet. Um, and and the, big, the big question, I, I think, this, with this announcement has been about the deliveries and, and the guidance, or rather the lack of guidance. Um, this has been the, the big issue here. Um, 
there was uh, guidance for 2024 deliveries overall from Elon Musk uh, of about 2.2 million vehicles. Now, that had started to look a bit of a stretch, um, the weaker consumer environment. Um, and, and also, it's felt that maybe the, the Model M has been a bit tired. Um, the Model Y has been really driving um, uh, its volume sales. So that always looked like a bit of a stretch for this year. Um, and ultimately, um, Musk and Tesla have said, yeah, we're not going to hit that kind of target. But what he's not said is, is, is what's more likely. So it's left analysts, obviously, to kind of rummage around with their calculations yeah, and yeah. To kind of come up with, with a number. Um, so you're, you're going to get a fairly wide remit. Some analysts will, will look on the very bleak side and some analysts will be a bit more, or it might be a slight, slightly under 2.2 million. But I think it's that uncertainty that's really created um, um, the, the, um, the, the, the mild panic in the markets. Um, with this with this announcement yeah that makes sense i mean given that tesla has put you know quite a lot into price cuts in order to sort of stoke sales is that you know part of it as well that you know it's disappointing that that you know they've, they've taken that those steps but it hasn't necessarily or it's not going to do the job in terms of sales in in 2024 yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question, Tom. I mean, you know, price cuts have been all over the news um, and for, for quite some time now, all the way through 23, and they started um, in late 22. I mean, the key, the key reason that Tesla, and and, and, and see Elon Musk, I mean, he, he really drives strategy at, at Tesla. The key reason that, that Musk wanted to cut prices was he, he really wants to uh, um, elevate the volumes. He wants to get... Tesla to be to be a kind of um you know, the go-to manufacturer for electronic vehicles. And um and the way of of doing that was cutting prices because they can afford to, because they were much higher margins than your average car manufacturer. Um and even the the, the upstarts from China who are, are purely EV makers, uh, electronic vehicle makers, they don't have legacy businesses, uh, really struggle to hit the kind of margins that Tesla has been hitting. But these have been, you know, inevitably, they're kind of massive pressure. So it, just for comparison, uh, the gross margin on, on autos uh, in full year 2021 was just over 25%, and it remained just over 25% in 2022. And then that got hammered down to below 20%. Um, in Q1 2023. Now, 20% was previously a line in the sand with many analysts, and they felt that um, it wouldn't need to go below, it shouldn't need to go below 20%, and 20% um, has been breached, and it's been breached consistently. And in this latest uh, report, we're looking at 17.2% uh, on, 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 the, on the cars. Um, now, that's slightly higher than the 16.7% that analysts had expected. But again, sequentially, it's it's down again um, on, 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 on past quarters. So the trajectory is still downwards. And, and that's really worrying investors in terms of even if volumes keep rising, it's not getting the benefit in terms of the profits. A key development last year was that BYD overtook Tesla as well as would BYD, we should say, is the Chinese manufacturer overtook Tesla as the, the leading electric vehicle manufacturer globally. Uh, I mean, how how significant is that, and how significant is the sort of competitive threat from China? Do you think? Well, I, I mean, it's, you know, competition is going to be rife in the EV market. Uh, let's make no bones about it. We've got massive legacy car manufacturers like Volkswagen, like Toyota. They're piling into the EV space. Um, inevitably, there's going to be this. There is this massive transition. And ten years from now, it's, it's unlikely anyone will be driving a, a, a petrol or diesel car, um, as, as far as I can see, anyway. Um, so, so competition is always going to be there. Um, I don't really see that uh, BYD becoming the number one volume seller is necessarily that big a deal. Um, ultimately, Tesla is, is is unlikely, I would have thought, to ever be the biggest EV seller in terms of volume. Um, but you know, we'll see. It has been up until this point. I suspect it's going to be overtaken by more than just BYD. Um, yeah, just to, to reiterate, Tom, yeah, BYD is the company that's been backed by Warren Buffett for, for a number of years, and he's made a profit on it. It's a privately owned business, so you can't buy shares in it. Um, but you know, fundamentally, you know, the, the, the competitive space is going to tighten up. 
But where Tesla has a huge advantage is its technological and its manufacturing platform. Um, it can make its cars so much more cheaply and efficiently than its rivals can, and that includes BYD. So to, just to give you some kind of uh, steer on this, um, recent trajectory, so cost of goods sold per vehicle. Right, so this is the cost, basically the cost of the vehicle, uh, a vehicle being made by Tesla. In Q4 2022, that's going to come down from about $39,500 to Q4 2023 to about $36,000, give or take. Now, that's taking a huge amount of cost in a year out of its manufacturing. Now, that ultimately should mean things like rising wages, rising inflationary pressure on fuel and et cetera, et cetera, are, are, um, are being offset by its efficiencies. And these are efficiencies that many of its rivals simply are going to struggle to get, especially legacy makers, uh, because they've, they've still got these really high um, high cost manufacturing operations to maintain before they transition fully to, to electric. And one of the things that has emerged today alongside the earnings, although Tess, not really so much from Tesla itself, but there's been quite a lot of reporting around it, is the kind of idea of this mass market model, $25,000 price tag. I think name has been speculated as Redwoods, and that's going to come out in 2025. But how significant is that, do you think, for Tesla? I mean, I think that will be very significant. Um, again, going back to what I said previously, I mean, its cheapest model up till now has been its uh, Model 3. And, and that's been pitched at you kind of the everyday people in the world, you you and me, right? And it's, it's kind of comparable to maybe a 3-series BMW or maybe a Volkswagen Golf or something of that kind of ilk. Um, I think its average selling price has been around $30,000, $32,000. It's been trying to, to lower the cost to below $30,000. Um, it might have done so in certain markets, but obviously there's the complication of currency exchange rates and all that jazz. But um, being able to launch a, a, a car, a brand new electric vehicle for less than $25,000 means that it's going to become a lot more attractive to um, to, to average families uh, across the US, across Europe. Um, and that's, that's going to be key in terms of, of driving its volumes. Um, let's not also forget um, it's, it's managed to eventually get Cybertruck um, uh, uh, deliveries going after, after several years of, of, of to and fro. Yeah. started to receive their Cybertruck. So Dan might call them very ugly. You might call them very ugly. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter. There does seem to be a huge appetite for Cybertruck. Um, so that's also going to give Tesla um, some kind of lift in terms of volumes in 2024 and, and beyond. But quite how big a lift, it's really difficult to say. And when we're talking about a, a sub $25,000 car, I mean, it's not, it's, it's been speculated that it wants to try and get um, cars manufacturing going in the second half of 2025. That looks a very ambitious um, target. Um, 2026 looks much more likely. So it's it's down the line. Um, I think it's going to be one of those cases where investors will, will hang on every word that Elon says of how the progress is going. But at the moment, he's not saying very much about it. No, absolutely. The Cybertruck that you mentioned there, obviously there's a huge market for pickup trucks in the States and obviously EV version of that is, is bound to go down well. One of the issues, I guess, for them there is the manufacturing complexity that it, it is taking sort of longer to ramp up production. Um, I think that was reflected a bit in in the quarterly numbers, wasn't it? Yeah, that's that's right. And I mean, remember, I mean, the the, the the sort of the most the more kind of a eclectic vehicles, and and this is about as eclectic a vehicle as you could possibly hope to see, are, are going to to need a slightly more complex production line. Um, but again, this is where Tesla has has demonstrated um, a timely again, in fairness, that it's able to execute the manufacturing really well. And very cost effectively, and and when it comes down to um, you know whether you own the shares or not, I mean those kind of facts are going to be really important to you. Um, it might be a bit costly at the moment, but I would expect the cost of uh, every cyber truck coming off the production line to to be lower and lower and lower 
over um, over the, the coming quarters. So, I mean, there are there are really efficiencies to be made out of every new vehicle that um, launches out of the Tesla brand. Um, the starting cost of production is unlikely to be where the cost of production ends up. Absolutely. Uh, one other sort of issue that is weighing on investors' minds seems to be a kind of threat from Elon Musk that if he isn't given kind of great control, I think 25% sort of control of the the business, then he might take other projects, other kind of non-EV projects elsewhere. I mean, not to denigrate Musk, but is that threat somewhat reduced given his his kind of reputation as an entrepreneur has been a little bit bruised by the whole kind of Twitter X experience? Yeah, to be in all, in all honesty, Tom. I mean, who's to say? I mean, yeah. Elon Musk is, is such a, a loose cannon, isn't he? We, we, it's been one of the big criticisms about him. I, I mean, investors generally love him because he's been such a great um, champion of renewable energy in terms of the whole Tesla brand, all of its Powerwall stuff, and his, his Tesla cars. Obviously, um, he, he's genuinely changing the world um, and led that change in terms of EVs, certainly. But, I mean, there's always been this question about you know, what's he going to say next? And and now that he owns Tesla, it's his, almost his, his kind of personal fiefdom, um, and, and he feels he can almost shoot from the hip about any topic. So there's always that kind of, um, I suppose, risk, threat to some degree that, you know, he says something that, that drops, drops, drops him or the company in it. Um, in terms of this conversation about he wants a bigger share of, of Tesla, um, it, it makes me wonder. I mean, to what end? Uh, so he's he's saying he's got about thirteen percent of the company as it stands. Um, he's talking about twenty five percent. It's still not controlling interest. So I mean, what difference would that really make? I mean, that's 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 a rhetorical question because I I, I don't really know the answer. Um, it sounds more like maybe he's playing political games. If if you recall, and some of our listeners might not not realise, but there was a big options um, scheme from 2018 um, where he could cash in enormous numbers of shares, um, and that that fell under the scrutiny of regulators, and it's and it's it's, it's still ongoing. Um, so, for the way for him to be given a much bigger slice of Tesla would involve enormous share options again being issued to him. Um, it's, it's not at this stage we don't even know if it's realistic. Um, so what he wants and what he gets might well be two very different things. Um, the idea of him taking his best ideas out of the Tesla stable and and starting something else, well, he's already done this. I mean, you know, SpaceX is a separate entity, and he's got various fingers in various pies. Uh, what it might mean is we get to see other Elon Musk driven businesses come to the stock market in separate entities and and actually that might be quite a good thing rather than having this kind of conglomerate tesla let's keep things separated so so there are pros and cons but i mean as it, as it stands i mean who knows you know what no who knows i mean it won't be boring that's for sure um, <laughs> it won't be boring no and just to round things off obviously it's been a difficult period for the Tesla share price, you know, previously, you know, real market darling that has performed exceptionally well. What do you think is required to kind of repair the damage and maybe sort of restore some momentum to the shares? Well, okay. So, uh, I mean, again, context is needed, Tom, isn't it? I mean, if you look back um, to the start of 2023, I mean, the share price rallied about, I think during the course of the year, around 200%. And then towards the end of 23, it started to take tail off. Um, can the year 2024, it's it's down about 16%. But realistically, what does that tell you? Uh, it just tells me that the share price is pretty volatile. And that's you know, what investors should really expect with Tesla because it's um it's 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 starting out on this long-term journey of 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 transforming the motor industry with electric vehicles and investors inevitably are kind of driven by this quarter-on-quarter basis. But realistically, quarter-on-quarter figures, they don't really give you the full story. You want to be taking like a three, five, ten-year view. That's um, probably the sensible approach and kind of tune out some of the background noise that comes from quarter-on-quarter um, uh, results. Um, you, you want to kind of get a sense of, is the direction of travel, has that changed? And if if you answer no, then there's no real reason to to, to, to change your, your view on the company. Um, 
so general weakness, I mean, 16% in a month or so, uh, you know, in the long-term history of Tesla, that's not such a big deal. It's had lows, it, it plunges by quite big, um, large measures, and then it rallies by quite large measures. So you've got to be willing to accept that volatility if you want to own shares in Tesla. Um, that's just part and parcel of the ride, I think. So thanks to Tom and Steve for coming on the show to talk about Tesla. They'll be back next month to get under the bonnet of another well-known stock. But now let's turn our attention to some personal finance news involving credit. Yeah, we had um, the uh, quarterly Bank of England survey where they talked to banks and lenders and asked them about how things are going. And we found in the three months in the run up to Christmas, the number of people defaulting on loans, credit cards, mortgages was actually on the rise. Now, we know, don't we, Dan, that we've seen the Bank of England hike interest rates again and again and again to a point where a lot of people just aren't familiar with that kind of level. And although the anticipation is still that we will start to see the reverse of that later this year, a lot of lenders, a lot of um, market watchers are now sort of pushing back the expectation a little bit further, it seems, every day, particularly after those inflation numbers for the UK came in hotter than had been anticipated. Um, but banks and building societies were saying, look, we're losing more money on these defaults. And crucially, they are expecting the number of defaults to increase this year as well. They also saw, which I don't think anyone would be surprised by, that the demand for new mortgages from first-time buyers and for remortgages fell. A lot of people putting off those house moves, those house purchases, until they figure out exactly where the markets are going to sort of rest and when they can get to a point where they can sort of say, right, okay, well, we we know what our monthly payments are going to be, not just, you know, in a couple of years time, but in five, 10 years time when we come to remortgages. And I think what's been really interesting has been a lot of the political discussion that's been taking place in the last couple of weeks about where the housing sector will go about, you know, whether or not we should have mortgages that run for a term of 25 years, whether or not lenders should offer 99% mortgages. So you only need to find a 1% deposit and all the potential pitfalls that that comes with. And also the potential, obviously, to really fire up house prices again. But yeah, I think it was really interesting as well that the problem wasn't just confined to mortgages. We also had things like non-mortgage loans. So car and home loans, defaults on those rose too, as people have really got to a point where the cost of living crisis has eroded the savings and they are now beginning to hurt. What I also find massively interesting is we had an update from electrical giant Curry's and that was fascinating because they saw sales of those big ticket items over Christmas fall away. They're still expecting um, pre-adjusted profits to come in at the, the same sort of amount that they had been expecting. So 105 to 115 million for the current financial year. But the one thing that Curry's did say, which really caught my attention, is that they have seen the number of customers choosing to borrow money to finance their purchases through things like monthly installment payments or buy now, pay later offers rise to a record high. And in fact, more than a fifth of Curry's UK and Ireland customers borrowed money in order to finance those purchases. Now, it is a brilliant way to do it. It's really funny because I actually got my daughter a mobile phone from Curry's using their buy now, pay later option. So it's completely interest free as long as you pay it back in six months time. And it was just a smart way for her to be able to do it. And then she was able to pay it back monthly over those six months. And if you use it right, it's great. But if you get to a point, particularly, and I'm thinking now, you know, when those buy now, pay later um, amounts start coming through your doors, when your credit card bills start coming through your doors and you start to really take stock of where you are. And if you miss a payment or if you get to the end of that, 
term and suddenly you have to pay for the credit that you kind of been hoping you were going to get interest free, then it does become an issue. And I think that we are sort of now at a bit of a tipping point where the pain that has been put into the system deliberately by the Bank of England is really beginning to come through and impact people's day-to-day lives. I think lots of people might sort of take the view that you know once we see that first rate cut from the Bank of England, that everything will be fixed. But I think the problem is that we're probably not going to see rates cut rapidly. Uh, they may, you know, a tiny little bit each time, um, and it could, does imply that you know consumers who are under financial pressure now. Um, could still be under financial pressure for quite a while, and equally, you know, they may need to rebuild their finances, rebuild those sort of emergency pots of cash and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it could be quite a quite a sort of a challenging period. I mean, you, know, you just have to look at all the companies that are reporting recently. They're all saying consumer is very fragile. Um, of course, fragile consumer means obviously less spending, and, and, and businesses might be cautious about spending as well. So, um, it, it is a worry. When you do see credit um, defaults increase, but look, let's let's hope it doesn't get to a sort of a situation where we've got widespread, um, you know, financial problems across the UK with individuals just can't can't cope with it. So um, let let's move on to the concept of drip pricing, uh, which has been all over the news this week, and why that could soon be outlawed. So, uh, Danny, you must have bought a ticket for something like a concert. Um, and think, okay, this is fine, but you get to the last page and you've got those extra fees on the end. Does that that <laughs> frustrate you? It's when you buy an airline ticket, that's the bit that frustrates me the most because you think you've got a great deal and then you've got to book your seat and add your baggage on and do you want fast track through security and all of those things suddenly takes what you thought was going to be a really affordable getaway for a family of four and suddenly makes it crazily expensive and and maybe has you second guessing. But we kind of got used to it really, haven't we? Yeah, but it but it is it is frustrating, and I think that, that there's been quite a bit of a pushback from um, you know various places, and now we've got sort of you know, potential changes. So this is the concept of of drip pricing, where you you buy something and then you get sprung with extra fees at the other end. Um, you know these sort of hidden charges are for, for online customers are set to be banned under new proposals. So the, the changes are expected to come into force this spring under something called the Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill. So um, as part of that, we're also going to have fake reviews will, will be banned and, and firms will have to be clearer with price labels on, on the supermarket shelves. But um, I think what the, with drip pricing, the Department for Business and Trade has a report on it and sort of suggesting that, that this is a really widespread practice and um, entertainment providers, hospitality industry, transport and communication communication sectors are all the sort of key places where, where you find out about it. So um, there was a really interesting article I read about it, and it, and it sort of did some sort of uh, psychological studies into why drip pricing has actually worked for the companies. Obviously, it's not good for the, cons- the end consumer, but for, for the companies doing it, it's been successful because the idea is that your, your brain sort of anchors to the first price that you see. So if you see, say, a ticket cost you £20, as you keep going through that sort of checkout process, you, you, your mind is just focused on that 20 quid. So if you suddenly see some extra fees later in the transaction process, they perhaps don't feel big enough to change your mind. Or um, it might be that you know, people just aren't good enough at doing the maths in the head. They don't realize how much that's adding on to it. It's also the sort of the, the foot in the door technique. So you're more likely to agree to something if you've already taken that sort of small step towards it. And, and third, by the time you reach that final stage and, and those extra fees pop up, you think, oh, blimey, I've done all this. I've done all this work. I've already gone through this process. I've invested my time already. I can't be bothered to look elsewhere. I'll just pay it. So, I mean, stamping out this practice has got to be a good thing. But, Danny, you said at the start about the airlines. And, and to me, that's the, that's the first thing that I think of. I think, you know, damn you, EasyJet, for hiding those fees. <laughs> But there's a twist to the story that flights are not going to be included in this sort of um, in this ban, which seems very weird. Um, 
you know, like you say, you know, airline seat reservations, you know, upgrades for you know for how much luggage you want to take, all these things, but they're not going to be included. Um, and then the sandwich that you might want to add to that, <laughs> and you know, the soft drink or whatever, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, so the airline industry have been on this for a while and been pushing back and saying, do not include us in this ban. And one person said, when you buy a flight, it's no different from buying a pizza. If you want those extra toppings, you pay for them. And there's no difference there. <laughs> so I thought that's a nice way of putting it. But um, you wonder how long, you know, it's, they're, they're not going to be part of the ban now, but come back in couple of years time i wouldn't be surprised to see if they were i suppose um, the only thing is when you get rid of drip pricing then what happens is the original thing that you were going to buy the price for that will have to go up because it will then have to offset the fact that they're either not charging for all of those things or the, all of those things will end up being included yeah it's a frustrating situation so let's let's move on to Royal Mail. It's been in the news this week because this talk that uh, you know getting letter deliveries six days a week could soon be over is. I mean, I, I can't actually remember having more than one letter a week anyway. So uh, you know, for some people it won't make a difference, but for others it will be it won't be very good at all. So Danny, what what's been happening there? Yeah, there's been a whole lot of pushback on this and social media has been absolutely full of people commenting because I think everyone's got an opinion on this. It It's part of the fabric of our society. You know, letters coming through your door, the expectation that if you need something to get somewhere six days a week, wherever you live, that is going to happen. The postie is going to walk up your street and stick the letter through your letterbox. But... When was the last time you posted a letter, Dan? Um, quite a while ago. I, but I tell you what, I've been using the Royal Mail a lot for parcels. Of course, parcels are, are not, uh, they're not going to be changed, are they? That's what they want. Royal Mail wants to deliver parcels. They don't want to deliver the letters, do they? Yeah, so um, Ofcom's obviously been taking a look at this. And the reason we're talking about it today is they've put forward a whole load of potential proposals of how Royal Mail um, could uh, international distribution services, as it is known on the stock market, um, how they could potentially see changes to this universal service obligation, which requires them to deliver mail six days a week. So it looked at the volume of letters being posted and said that there are half the number being posted now compared to 2011, whereas parcel deliveries have become more profitable. And Ofcom reckoned if delivery days were cut to five a week, then um, the company could save between 100 million and 200 million pounds every year. And another option would be just to have three day a week delivery. And then the savings are between 400 million and 650 million pounds. So it is a huge amount for international distribution services. And a lot of people have been saying, well, hang on a second. When Royal Mail was privatized, they knew that this service obligation was included. And actually, the fact that it has this monopoly on delivering letters is something which is so special and delivers such an amount of profitability and cash for the company that, you know, that they should just figure out a way to make it work. But IDS, the group's owner, says, look, things have changed. They did do better this Christmas. So we saw um, this Christmas, it was the um, best performance for four years. But you are talking about a company that has been seriously struggling with profitability. Now, we know that they had issues with strikes over the last couple of years. But uh, operating profits for the second half is sort of going to offset the fact that they had a £169 million first half loss. So it's on track to sort of break even for the full year. But clearly, there are still issues with this service model. And that is something that IDS has been campaigning for for quite some time. And Ofcom has, has done this look since September at potentially how things could change and deliver a set of options. And, and as I say, you know, that was one that either we could see 
um, service drop from six to five or even three days a week. Um, or there could be other options as well, you know, potentially would the taxpayer want to subsidize it? Um, would the time it takes for a letter to arrive at our doors, you know, that next day delivery, would that now take longer unless you were prepared to pay for it? Now, there's been a big kickback from um, government. Rishi Sunak said, look, you know, we don't want this. We wouldn't support this. And clearly they would need Parliament to agree to it, to make those changes. It would need to go through Parliament if this service agreement were to be altered. But I don't know about you, Dan. How do you feel about it? Because it's not just the UK where the postal service has changed. We've seen changes in Italy, Germany. They've cut the number of days of delivery. And I know certainly La Poste in France, it actually started giving people the opportunity to pay for posties to stop off and see their older relatives to make sure that they were okay in a way to subsidize the, you know, the whole, the whole postal service. It, it's, it's a weird one, isn't it? It is. I mean, I'm trying to think of like, what's the stuff that you potentially need the next day? It could be hospital appointment letter or, or, or you know, I wonder what, you know, could there be... Ex- I guess could there be exceptions, or could could you know perhaps you know, could the NHS use a different service to to get out important information, for, for example, like that, or you know I guess you 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 have to just open it up to to more competition, really. You know, someone I'm sure someone would want to deliver letters, but um, you know equally you've got so many thing communications that are just sent by text message or, or email now. Do do we have to think about longer term that you know? The idea of a physical piece of paper—it's just outdated. Um, I know there's. It lots is outdated, of people... and yeah, yeah, HMRC when they're sending you the correspondence, they send it by letter because that way they say that you're not going to be subject to fraud. Because of course we have to factor this in as well. We know a lot of people have had huge issues with fake text messages and fake emails, and you know when you get that letterhead through your door that it has come from HMRC. So all of these things have to be sort of factored into this discussion. Yeah, and it's, I, I can see this one, you know, having to be debated quite a lot for some time. Um, and I'm sure whatever whatever the outcome, you know, there's going to be someone who's going to disagree with it. Like you say, everyone everyone's got a sort of opinion on that. So um, <laughs> let's let's bring on our let's bring on our next guest. So markets rebounded right at the end of last year. And of course, that gave a nice sort of boost to, to many people's portfolios. So Laura Suit is here to talk with AJ Bell Investments Director Ryan Hughes to get his take on what drove those gains, the outlook for the year ahead, and how all that impacted AJ Bell funds. Ryan, thanks a lot for joining me. Hi there. Thanks for having me. What was performance like in Q4 of last year? How did things shape up? Yeah, markets finished the year very, very strongly. Uh, actually, both in the equity markets and the bond markets. What we what we saw was European equities finish particularly strongly, uh, and also US equities continued their trend uh, throughout 2023 uh, and ended up having a very, very strong year. But it, it actually was broader than that as well. UK equities uh, had a positive uh, end to the year. If we think about the bond markets, then they, they finished the, the year very, very strongly, particularly UK government bonds, UK gilts, uh, and UK corporate bonds. But again, that widened out much further into both the US market and emerging market debt too. Lots of positive themes there, lots of positive performance news towards the end of the year. So what were the main drivers of that as we went into the end of last year? What we saw during the final quarter was uh, around mid-November was a real pivot point really, uh, where markets got the sense that interest rates were likely to be cut at some point during 2024. Now that was driven on the back of weaker data uh, around economic activity, but also signs that inflation was falling. So if we think about that scenario of uh, weaker data leading to lower interest rates, then investors saw that as a positive sign uh, for the outlook for the economy uh, in that that should provide some stimulus to the economy. And that was both good for bonds and equities. Do you think that this means that the UK economy and also the global economy is entering a different phase now if we're talking about these interest rate cuts after so long of talking of interest rate rises? Yeah, I mean, we've had a really challenging 18 months to two years. We've seen interest rates rise rapidly. Inflation really around the world shot up. We saw it go through 10% uh, here in the UK. 
Uh, if we think about the environment we're going into, then that, that data is really reversed. So inflation falling very, very sharply. It's likely to go beneath the Bank of England's 2% target uh, later on uh, this year, and uh, we should see interest rate cuts. So I do think we have entered uh, a different phase, uh, both in the UK and uh, around the world. And that does provide a different outlook for the types of assets that we invested in the AJ Bell funds. So let's turn more specifically to the AJ Bell funds. How did they perform last year and how did they end the year in that, in that fourth quarter? Just the, the AJ Bell range of funds managed to capture a lot of the uptick in, in markets and asset classes that we saw in the fourth quarter and, and therefore ended the year very, very strongly. So the overall performance for the year uh, has ranged between uh, around 5 and 8%, depending on, on which fund you are in. Uh, but a lot of that return did come in the fourth quarter. Markets were roughly, well, were pretty flat, really, through much of 2023. And then we had that real surge into the, the final quarter. So I think they, they finished the year, the year well. The overall return for the year, I think, is uh, hopefully investors are, are, are pleased with. Uh, it's broadly in line with our expectations as to where we set out uh, at the start of the year. And so thinking about the year ahead and maybe that shift in terms of the next phase of the global economy, have you made any changes to the funds as a result of that? Yes, we have. We have made a few changes to the asset allocation of the funds to really reflect those issues that we've been talking about and where we think the global economy uh, is going. Uh, a couple of highlights in, in what we have done uh, is there's a small increase in cash in some of the portfolios to reflect the rates that we can get on cash and uh, watchers will be familiar with where bank rates are uh, at the moment and the higher returns you can get on, on, on cash-based investments. Uh, we've also increased some exposure to investment grade bonds. So that's high quality companies uh, there who are issuing, issuing bonds. The returns there remain uh, appealing. And if we do get interest rate cuts through this year, then that should be a positive, not just for the income that we get from those bonds, but also the capital return we can get from those investments. If we turn to the equity sides of the portfolio, uh, then we've had a small reduction in US equities. They've performed very, very strongly over the last couple of years uh, and moved some of that money to put that to work in both Europe and Japan, uh, where we think uh, that the opportunity looks reasonably appealing. Now, that does vary depending on which portfolio you are in uh, there. So there is uh, further information available on the website. You can see exactly what has been done in the fund that's most relevant for you. That was Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell. We have run out of time, but it has been a bumper episode. Uh, Dan and I are going to be back next week when we're going to be joined by the guys from Nightcap PLC. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you tune into the podcast again. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not. Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.